Uh, I was just going over to turn on the lights. Oh, yeah, great. It's 1979, and I'm 11. Up until this point, I'd played rudimentary video games like Pong, but they didn't really capture my imagination. I mean, Pong was just two rectangles batting a square back and forth. But then, a local pizza parlor in our neighborhood got a new game, Asteroids. The graphics were still black and white, but they actually resembled the objects they were trying to simulate. You had a little spaceship that you controlled and you swerved around these lumbering asteroids. And every now and then a little alien spaceship arrived and started firing at you. The game even had a convincing physics to it. If you accelerated your spaceship, it would drift across the screen, sometimes uncontrollably. The whole experience was magic. Now, of course, when I show it to my kids today, they just give me this sad, patronizing look like I grew up in the Dark Ages. And I didn't realize it at the time, but Asteroids was the direct descendant of the first original video game ever created, Space War. In 1961, three grad students at MIT had gotten word that their department was going to be installing one of the most advanced computers ever built, the PDP-1 from Digital Equipment Corp. They called it a mini-computer, which seems like a joke to us today because this thing was the size of an armoire. And as you can imagine, the grad students were thrilled at the prospect of all this incredible computing power. And so they started to think about what their first program should be. In the end, they decided to take this million-dollar machine and use it to play a primitive video game called Space War. Now, this may seem like a colossal waste of resources, like hiring a symphony to play chopsticks, but Space War turned out to be one of the most important pieces of software ever written. I'm Steven Johnson, and this is Wonderland. Wonderland is brought to you by Microsoft and also by Riverhead Books, publisher of my new book, Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. Very few people understand how spaceships work. We don't have to make this about my poor play. but That is typical. Yeah. People think that spaceships sort of fly like airplanes, but they don't. Uh, that's space war creator Steve Russell. He was one of those grad students at MIT 55 years ago, trying to figure out how to showcase the power of the PDP-1. Okay, now your controls, you control. I don't see them. The spaceship that starts. And that is the voice of a true expert in modern video games, my 14-year-old son, Clay. Okay, here we go, there we go, two spaceships? Yep. Oh yeah, I can uh, turn mine. Okay, you've got rotate, which... Uh, turns the yeah, practice rotating first. We've made a pilgrimage down to the Computer History Museum in Silicon Valley because, among other attractions, they have a working PDP-1 on display there. And even better, you can play Space War on it. And best of all, Steve Russell can give you a live tutorial. Where'd my hyperbeam go? The winning thing to do is get yourself into a stable orbit. I feel rather proprietary about those graphics, even though it's 32 dots per spaceship. Now, what made the PDP-1 so special at the time was the fact that it was one of the first machines to have a graphical display. 
It didn't just communicate via punch cards or teletype. It used images on a screen. Russell and his roommates decided that the killer demo for the PDP-1 should be a kind of training program for space travel, which quickly took the form of a two-player game, each player controlling a small ship on the screen and firing torpedoes at the other. It was one of the first video games ever created. All those hours you've spent crushing candy or building Sim Cities or playing Madden, they all date back to Steve Russell and his friends deciding that the best way to showcase their new hardware was with a game. What's and that thing in the middle, Steve? That's ah. the star. Oh, and so if you crash into the star, you die. Uh oh, there I go. Ah. Oh, you just shot me. You shot me. <laughs> it was clearly easy to make it a two-person game. In fact, it was easier to make it a two-person game than to make it an automatic opponent. Dan Edwards figured out how to speed it up, speed up the display enough so that you could actually have time and time to calculate the gravitational effect by the sun in the center of the screen on the spaceships. That's amazing. And you have learned something about flying a spaceship today. Now, you might expect that this is a story about the birth of the video game industry, which, of course, it partially is. I mean, games are now a huge part of the way we entertain ourselves, from the Xbox to Pokemon Go, and it's interesting to go back and discover the roots of any form of entertainment. But the story of Space War has a surprising twist. It didn't just lay the groundwork for a new entertainment business. It also helped trigger a seismic shift in the culture. In our world, the speed and tempo of modern living are increasing at an ever-accelerating rate. Without organization, without system, the result would be chaos. Our control over a bewildering environment has been facilitated by new techniques of handling vast amounts of data at incredible speeds. The tool which has made this possible is the high-speed digital computer operating with electronic precision on great quantities of information. To understand Space War's influence, you have to remember what the technology world was like in the 60s. Computers, in a word, were for squares. They didn't seem to have anything to do with all the other revolutionary movements that defined the 60s, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the political protests, the whole countercultural scene. Computers belonged to the man, to big business, to the military. They had nothing to do with ordinary people, and they certainly had nothing to do with the hippies of the Summer of Love. But Space War opened up a link between those two worlds. Playing the game was a little like pressing the hyperspace button. You could get teleported from the bureaucratic world of big business into a completely different space. To understand the true impact of Space War, I've come to one of the most iconic sites from the 60s counterculture, the famous houseboats of Sausalito, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. I've come to spend some time with Stuart Brand, who has lived on a houseboat here on and off for almost half a century. Stuart has been involved in so many of the defining cultural events and institutions that came out of the Bay Area during that time, from the legendary Trips Festival in 1966 to the Whole Earth Catalog, to the first online community, The Well. Stuart actually came up with the term personal computer, and he was one of the very first people to grasp the whole idea that computers could be a democratizing force, that they didn't just belong to bureaucracies or the military. And Stuart got that idea from watching people play Space War. 
Well, they have is the memory of the memory at this point. <laughs> but uh, the story is that in 63 or so, after I got out of the Army, went back to Stanford where I graduated in 60, and for some reason was getting a tour of the computation center. And the tour involved going into the back room where I was hearing these gleeful screams, which you don't usually you know, hear in such places. And there was a couple of people playing what turned out to be Space War, I'd never seen that kind of excitement from people sitting down. <laughs> you know, I had had experience with psychedelic drugs by then, and it looked like a, they were having a psychedelic high wow. out of their bodies, carrying on, and lost, you know, lost mm. to, to this world and into their game world. And there for a while, clearly this was not like a five-minute thing. They were, <laughs> they were gone. Space War had traveled from MIT all the way to Stanford and to other computer labs around the country because a whole generation of computer pioneers had discovered, for the first time, how mesmerizing it was to manipulate virtual objects on a screen. I couldn't help thinking about this playing the game with my son. I mean, we're both accustomed to the most advanced graphics of modern-day consoles, and yet we were completely entertained by the simplest images you could imagine. If you go back and look at images of what the game looked like, particularly then, mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I was kind of describing it as like you were controlling two semicolons. <laughs> <laughs> and you're firing like a comma at, at yeah. somebody else. Rudimentary graphics are just fine so long as they respond instantly to input from the player. Space War tapped something deep in the human brain's attentional system. What Stewart was seeing there at the AI lab at Stanford is now an accepted idea in society. But at the time, it was a revelation. Those Space War players were sensing, for the first time, how the combination of a digital computer and an interactive screen could conjure up an entire world, a creative, playful space, a space you wanted to explore. With play, it's really easy to change the rules. That's, in a way, the most important thing about it. So one, it has rules, and everybody has to sort of agree on what the rules are. But part of the fun, and especially kids have this relationship to games, part of the fun is changing the rules and improving the rules. As Space War traveled from lab to lab over the course of the 60s, new rules and conventions were added to the game, all for the fun of it. Space War fans created control mechanisms anticipating modern joysticks and game controllers. New graphics routines, many of them focused on the explosions, made the game more lifelike. An MIT programmer wrote a program memorably dubbed Expensive Planetarium that filled the Space War screen with an accurate representation of the night sky. It was one of the first times that a computer graphics program had modeled a real-world environment. Anytime today that you use a mouse to click around on a graphic interface, or use open-source software, or navigate digital maps of real-world spaces, you're relying on innovations that Space War helped usher into the world. People would introduce pretty complex things like they would wire up the chairs the players were seated in so that when your spaceship got destroyed, you got an electric zap. <laughs> but it's kind of haptic feedback, basically. They have those in the controllers now. They invented funny. body scale haptic feedback. <laughs> they also invented an interesting thing that was desperately unpopular, which was that torpedo firing. They thought it was unrealistic that they always went where they were aimed. Some guy introduced a bit of fuzz into that so that 
they might miss, mm. uh, even though you aimed perfectly, uh, which was real-world-based wo- and, and easily simulated in the computer. People hated that. They mm. hated it. And it went no further than the first attempts to uh, to do it. People always want the best weapons they can possibly have. <laughs> By the early 70s, Space War had a passionate following among the early computer hacker population a game that no one owned, that had been collectively authored by hundreds of programmers over the preceding decade. And that is where Stuart Brand becomes central to the story. When I stopped the whole Earth catalog in 1971-72, wound up getting invited by Jan Winner, the editor of Rolling Stone, to write something for them now that I was free. And so I said I wanted to write about computers and what was going on with these games and stuff. And he said, what is going on? I I don't know. I'll find out. As part of his article, Stewart helped organize the first ever Intergalactic Space War Olympics at Stanford's Artificial Intelligence Lab. I organized the Galactic Space War Olympics as a way (laughs) to feature this five-player version of Space War that was going on at the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Lab. And I thought... You know, if we're going to have the photographer, Andy Leibowitz, come down and photograph stuff, let's have something worth photographing. At the end of 1972, he published his Rolling Stone piece with a great new journalism title, Space War, Fanatic Life and Symbolic Death Among the Computer Bums. Well, the opening line of the article was, ready or not, computers are coming to the people. And the second line was, that's the best news in psychedelics. (laughs) And the ready or not angle was just acknowledging that people had thought that computers were this um, deeply bureaucratic, insanely expensive tool that only huge institutions could deploy. And what I was seeing with Space War with with the hackers is that there was a democratization of access that was coming to these mm. computers, even if they lived on the mainframes. And now, of course, it's, it's the web that, uh, that has that quality. That essay is one of the all-time classics in the history of tech writing. In the end, it was almost as influential as Space War itself. Observing the psychedelic high of people playing a game on a computer screen, Stewart saw what he called a, quote, flawless crystal ball of things to come in computer science and computer use. The game players tinkering with the rules to their sci-fi fantasy world, they weren't just freaks and geeks. They offered a glimpse of what mainstream society would be doing in two decades. And this is what play often gives us. A sneak peek at upcoming transformations, camouflaged as time wasters or trivial pursuits. Watch your kids playing Minecraft or Pokemon Go today, and you'll see the seedlings of some equivalent revolution 10 or 20 years from now. In the end, Stuart Brand was right about computers coming to the people, though even he might have been surprised at how quickly that forecast came true. As Space War grew in popularity, Steve Russell moved to Seattle after his tenure at MIT and mentored a brilliant teenager with a passion for computers named Bill Gates. Meanwhile, back in the Bay Area, right around the time of the Space War Olympics, the video game company Atari was founded with the aim of creating a commercial version of Space War. Seven years later, they shipped that arcade version of Asteroids that so captivated me as an 11-year-old. Inspired by Stuart Brand's Rolling Stone essay, 
another young hippie from the Bay Area started working for Atari, and then, shortly thereafter, left to found a company devoted exclusively to making personal computers. His name was Steve Jobs. Wonderland is brought to you by Microsoft, committed to empowering people to achieve more, and by Riverhead, the publisher of my new book, Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. It's coming out November 15. Wonderland was produced by the team at Story Things and How We Get to Next. Kristen Taylor is our producer, Jason Oberholzer is our audio engineer and music editor. I wrote and performed the theme music. Visit wonderland.audio for more info on the series and our guests. In our next episode, exploring new frontiers of sound by inventing new instruments or breaking the old ones with special guests Brian Eno and Alex Ross. You know, when I first started making ambient music, the first thing reviewers noticed was everything that was missing. It doesn't have a beat, it doesn't have a melody, it doesn't really have any chords, it doesn't have words. <laughs> so all it had was space, actually. And that's what people picked up on. They'd never heard music with as much space as that, actually. So the difference was both what it was missing and what it therefore had.